0: I'm Peggy Clark, and welcome to The Bridge. The Bridge pairs wise women and a few good men from different generations into revelatory conversation about what matters most. The Bridge is a podcast of the Aspen Institute, a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. We are so excited to launch Season 3 of The Bridge during Women's History Month and right after International Women's Day. This episode of The Bridge was recorded in August of 2019 at the Aspen Institute campus in Aspen, Colorado. Today I'm absolutely delighted to kick off season three of The Bridge with two wonderful women who I care very deeply about, and they're a formidable mother and daughter pair, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and her daughter Alice Albright, CEO of the Global Partnership for Education. Welcome, Madeleine and Alice. Great to be with you, Peggy. Thank you so much. Great. Well, I'm so delighted you're here. We're um, recording live from the Aspen Podcast Studio, and both Alice and Madeline have been uh, running around at a number of different events, and we are really delighted to be out here in, in Aspen with you both. So let's just begin and let's jump in. This is really such a great opportunity. I know both of you independently, and it's so special to have you together. Um, and as you know, the Bridge podcast features conversations between women of different generations. And so that allows us to go a little bit deeper on what do we mean about progress and women's rights over time. And we also believe that we have so much to learn from each other. Different generations see each other, see issues in different ways. So, Madeline, let's just start by grounding ourselves. What generation are you from, and what do you think defines your generation?
1: Well, it's hard to describe my generation because I would say transitional. I graduated from college in 1959. I went to Wellesley, a women's college, and where we were used to having all the leadership roles, um, president of student council and college newspaper and all that. And yet, one of the things we all remember is our commencement speaker, who was Neil McElroy, the Secretary of Defense at the time, because his daughter was in our class. And he actually said, your main responsibility is to get married and raise interesting children. Some of us remember it even worse, saying especially sons, but I think we made that up. Um, <laughs> but it was a very strange kind of send-off for a women's college. Uh, I waited a long time to get married, three days after graduation. Um, LAUGHTER but we really were transitional, and uh, and I think it's something that many of us. We just I just had my sixtieth reunion, and many of us actually talked about it in terms of the way that we were sent off, uh, and that we clearly um, had very mixed careers, and debated about who we were and what our role in life really was, despite the fact. That we had graduated
0: from one of the premier women's colleges. Oh, that's fascinating. So it was really a time of change. Yes, very much so. So, Alice, what about you? What what generation are you from, and what defines it?
2: Well, I think we're a little further along. I would say further along, but not done yet. Uh, and and I've been particularly interested over the past you know number of months about how evident it is for things to slip back. So think about the Me Too movement. I mean, every time you read about another organization that has had Me Too problems, I sort of stand back and go, how is this possible? Uh, When you think about the Democratic uh, election we have about to unfold, there are questions still on people's minds. Can the United States elect a women president? Mm -hmm. And I can't believe we're still asking that. And, you know, there are countless examples of where it's still clear how easy it is for things to slip back. And so I'd say a little further, but boy, we're not done yet. Right. Think about the women's soccer team. I mean, that oh was my so goodness. glorious to yeah. watch. Yes. That was
0: great. I know, that was really mobilizing. Um, so, w- one question I have for both of you is, when in your own life did, where did you first become aware of sort of the fragility of your own rights as a woman? And Madeline, let me turn to you first. Well, I think um, very early, frankly, and it had a lot to do
1: with careers and things. I had wanted to be a journalist, um, and um, I had been one of the editors of my college paper. And when my husband was in the Army uh, in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, I got a, had a job at the Rolla Daily News, and I did everything, and I loved it. And then we moved back to Chicago, where he had a job on a newspaper, and we were having dinner with his managing editor, who looks at me and says, so what are you gonna do, honey? And I said, I'm gonna work for a newspaper, and he said, I don't think so. You can't work on the same paper as your husband because of labor regulations, and even though there were three other papers in Chicago at the time, He said, and you wouldn't want to compete with your husband, so go find something else to do. Mm -hmm. So it made very clear that whatever plans I had um, separately were fragile. There's no question. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the truth is that one has to admit that there's fragility to plans, men or women. I think we do kind of focus, for obvious reasons, on women's fragility. But I also think that we have to be um, very flexible and try to find um, the best of what we're doing. And in my case, it all ended up pretty well. But, But I really do think that we are conscious. I agree with Alice in terms of the fragility at the moment, and it has been at various times.
0: Things can go back very easily, and we have to be very conscious of that. Absolutely. So Alice, what about you in your own life? Certainly, you know, as the daughter of Secretary Albright, and, um, and many of our listeners probably imagine that you may have not experienced some of the same battles that your mom did, but maybe you did.
2: No, I think I became aware of the battles a little bit later, but growing up, we could not have been more lucky. I've got two sisters. We grew up in a very girl household. We had incredibly supportive parents. We went to an all girl school uh, and played lots of sports, and it never crossed our mind ever that we couldn't do exactly what we wanted. So we were privileged completely privileged. And I bet if you ask my sister, they say the same thing. We also had the best role model in the world. But my dad was also very, is also very, very supportive of go out and do what you want uh, and don't be deterred. I think that where I became first aware of fragility is I spent the first 15 years of my career on Wall Street. And part of that was living in London, which we loved. And part of one of my jobs living in London was... Uh, frequently traveling to South Africa and and many other countries. But I often, in that environment on Wall Street, felt like I was not going to be in the inner cool club unless I could easily joke about sports, uh, could easily go out drinking. Um, and, you know, I remember one night I was in with, you know, my work colleagues and people said, oh, let's go out drinking. And somebody handed me a shot glass with tequila in it and I'm not a big drinker, and I just had a little sip, and I said, "Okay, that's fine." Um, and I bought a book called Rugby for Dummies uh. before I went on one of my business trips,
0: <laughs> just so
2: I could, fe- you know, so that's I could patient. say something. And I, I picked up the newspaper to read the sports column, and mm. and so you, it became very clear to me that if I wanted to be one of the inside people, I had to adopt the hobbies and the likes of others. And then after a while I said, all right, well, it's not me. <laughs> I like to go running and you know, I'm just going to do something else and you know, you put I put ice in my veins and I learned what I had
0: to learn and that's that. Mm-hmm. Is that one of the reasons you left the Wall Street world to do what you've done?
2: No. Um, I I woke up one morning. Well, I had been at an organization where it dawned on me that I really wanted to go do something good. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and on a complete lark, I found my way into GAVI, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, which I loved every minute of. Uh, so it was not motivated in any way by this sort of inside thing. But I have noticed in, uh, in the number of the jobs that I've had is that um, you, you, need, you, you are held to a higher standard of mastering the technical substance than people around you. And so you better study up. So I'm very good at reading. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of stuff. Rugby for dummies. Plus, yeah, plus, plus. But, but plus, then it plus. became how do you make a vaccine or, yeah. you know, how does Boeing aircraft work when you work at the U.S. Export-Import Bank? And mm-hmm. so you're held to a higher standard of knowing the substance. And I, I have now found that to be a great delight because I love reading a pile of information about whatever it is I happen to be working on. It's right, great me fun. Too.
0: Me too. Were you aware of some of the struggles your daughters and Alice were going through as a mother in terms of being as successful as they are, and all three of them are extraordinary. Well,
1: I assume they were going through struggles because I think, um, first of all, nothing's worth it if you don't have to work for it. But I could see what was going on just generally, despite the fact um, that my career was going pretty well. But even as uh, ambassador to the United Nations or secretary of state, um, you still have to kind of focus on how you relate to the other people. Why aren't there more women in the room? Uh, and um, and I knew that they were going through these things, uh, but I also um, having some sense of having not been a great mother, because I kept doing all these things. I'd say, was I okay? Was I okay? <laughs> you know. So my great pride are my three daughters uh, that really have been able to all three of them have remarkable careers, and and know what they're going through, and the fact that even Alice said she understands that this could be pushed back because the part that worries me now are the number of young women who, um, how to put it, are not really appreciative of that they stood on other people's shoulders and that things can be pushed back very quickly. And that one of the things that I've uh, have believed, in, and Alice said it in her way too, is women have to work twice as hard. Um, you know, I, I've said there's plenty of room in the world for mediocre men. There's no room for mediocre women. And so I do think that I look at what they're doing, and even though we're 24 years apart, um, I think that there are similar challenges. And I'm very, very glad that Alice and her sisters are realistic enough to know that they still have to work twice as hard and that uh, they are being judged by different standards
0: than men are. Absolutely. What you mentioned, Madeline, I'm sure rings truce to so many people who are listening as well as me, which is the guilt of the working mom. And I think it plays out in different generations. I think I'm still paying my dues on that and it's so interesting that you're sitting here with Alice because when you said, you said, yeah, I felt I wasn't a good enough mom and Alice was shaking her mm-hmm. head no, no, no. But isn't that interesting? I but don't think any man would feel No, that, but don't. I have
1: to tell you, I say this on a regular basis, that every woman's middle name is guilt because you never think, you don't know whether you're in the right place. Um, You know, you don't know what your children are doing or whether your house is still in order or whatever. But I have to tell you, and this is the part that I've mentioned many times and makes me very sad. It's other women, partially, that give you that middle name. And, And that was my experience, the most famous statement I ever made that there's special place in hell for women who don't help each other. It was so famous it was on a Starbucks cup, <laughs> but it really came from my own experience because what happened, um, uh, when the twins were born, um, I uh, they had to stay in the hospital because they were premature, and I uh, couldn't hold them or touch them or anything, so I started taking Russian, and it made me think that I wanted to go to graduate school. And the bottom line is that Uh, I know one shouldn't say this, but it isn't the most exciting thing in the world to feed your children every three hours and make hundreds of bottles of formula. Um, And so I felt guilty about that. And when I was going to graduate school, there were other women who would say, why aren't you home with your children? Um, Or later, why aren't you in the carpool line? Um, Or my holiday sauce is better than yours. And so I think we do that to each other. And I wish that women... We're less judge, that we were less judgmental, judgmental about each other because I think uh, people and everybody needs to do what they want to
0: do and not to be made feel guilty by others. Right. Absolutely. And there's probably guilt on the other side. The one in the carpool line is wishing she was, you know, perhaps doing good for the world. But Alice, what's your reaction to some of what your mom just said? About
2: well, I think we've got to be very conscious of, of the workplace. And I have made a huge effort in my workplace for working women, and uh, it in many ways. I mean, philosophically, I think being a working mom is the best thing in the world, because if you've had a rotten day at the office, there's nothing better than walking in and having somebody coming up to you and saying, Mommy, Mommy, help me with my science homework and make cookies. Yeah. And nothing nothing, is better than that. And Sunday or Monday comes around and you've had enough, you can go back mm-hmm. to the office. And there's also great perspective. I mean, I, I think that unless... And my working mom colleagues think the same thing, which is that unless somebody's kids are on the floor dying, every problem is solvable. So it just gives you remarkable perspective. So I would never give up the working mom thing. But we have to be very conscious of how hard it is to be a working mom, particularly young moms. And what I do whenever somebody in my office is about to have their first child, I go and I say I give them what I call my working mommy pep talk. And I say, okay, here's how it's going to be when you come back to work. And, you know, we're just going to make it easy on you and don't be hard on yourself. And I create a space for them. And then I say to all of the people in the office, please do not ever miss a kid's game, a holiday play, a parent-teacher conference. We have your phone number. We can get you. And you can integrate being a parent and an employee and I say, and I'm asking you, you can do this because I do the same thing myself. I say I have David on one shoulder and Daniel on the other shoulder, and when they call, I
1: take their call. You know and what so is
2: I? You have to lean into making it possible.
1: You have to. What is interesting is the difference on this because um, I I wasn't a boss. I was in, in an office. I, I worked um, on Capitol Hill for Senator Muskie, and I tried very hard never to actually. Uh, ask for exceptions in any kind, because it was a question of trying to prove that a woman could even do anything. And so having a woman boss and having women respect each other and help each other out on this, uh, I think is very important. I do think that there are more and more men that are conscious of this also, but it's very different in terms of when, you know, um, I first... What had happened, I'd had this job in Missouri, and then I didn't have a job job until I was 39 years old. And all three of my daughters, my youngest daughter, Katie, was six, but basically they were grown up. I didn't have to worry about them, but I couldn't say, well, I have to go uh, to a a sports event or something because I knew they were watching to see whether I could be a functional uh, colleague And something was always happening. Well, so here's the difference. When
2: I have meetings in my office, uh, I say to everyone, put both of your phones down. If you get a kid call, go take it. Uh, And I take kid calls, too. And I say, fine, we're just going to stop the meeting. Go take your kid call. And, like,
0: it's no big deal. Mm, that's um, so great, Alice. I'm <clears throat> So glad everybody's hearing this because we hope many other women will, um, bosses will take up what you're suggesting. But I say to the, g- the dads, go take your kids' call too.
2: So yeah. I really I make it just
0: sort of a no big deal. Yeah, it's that's huge. Um, I do the same, but at the beginning of my career I didn't. But now I always I always have to answer the phone, and there's so many. So many times. It's so interesting to hear you two talk about this. It's interesting. It makes me think about, Madeline, if, you know, you were born at the time you were. But, you know, this brings me to my next question. Your career is so illustrious. And so you're such a beacon for so many women all over the world. And, you know, you were a first in so many ways, both you know, U.S. ambassador of the U.N., the first female secretary of state. What were the special pressures that you felt, or maybe you didn't, being the first in some ways? Well,
1: first, uh, one of the things that I did want to mention, I have always been kind of 10 years older than everybody, (laughs) and it was very true Mm -hmm. when I was on Capitol Hill um, in various times, and and, um, having gone through a number of different experiences, but the first part, I wasn't the first... um, uh, mm-hmm. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Jean Kirkpatrick, oh, right. had done that. That's and funny. what was fun, even though we're obviously from different parties, but she'd also been a professor at Georgetown. And I went to talk to her about what it was like. And and she was wonderful sister advice. Madeline, get rid of your professor clothes and go buy some new, more professional-looking <laughs> clothes. But I do think that um, But it was interesting because it wasn't that I was first. It's that I was the only woman on the Security Council. And one of the things that happened, because I had learned from having been in the Carter administration and being the only woman at the table always, that you had to speak up. And what would happen, frankly, is, um, and I know when I go out and talk about this that every woman identifies with this. You're in a meeting, you think I'm going to say something, and then you think, no, it'll sound stupid, so you don't say it, and then some man says it, and everybody thinks it's brilliant, and you're so mad at yourself for not talking. So after I had had my experience in the administration, I went and I taught at Georgetown. And I wanted to make sure that, and these are people that are going into international relations in some way, that they knew that they should speak up. And that actually, and then my motto was that women need to learn to interrupt. Uh, And if you're going to interrupt, you you have to know what you're gonna say, and you need to have a strong voice and all that. So then, having given advice for almost a decade, I go and I'm in the Security Council. And most of the meetings don't take place in that fancy room, but in some um, um, back room. And I, and I think I was the first time I was there, and I look at their 14 men sitting there glaring at me. And I think, well, I won't say anything today. I'll see if they like me. And, you know, what am I... And then I saw the sign that said the United States, and I thought, if I don't speak today, the voice of the United States will not be heard. But it took an active decision to do that, even though I knew perfectly well that I had told many women that they had to interrupt. But being first Secretary of State really was interesting in terms of knowing that I was being watched all the time, uh, trying to figure out everything from... um, you know, how much work I actually did. I knew I had to work twice as hard. Um, What questions I asked, what I wore, um, how I addressed people, how they addressed me, um, and how the men treated me. And the part that's interesting is even um, when I um, outranked a lot of people, um, some men would say to me in these meetings, don't be so emotional. Um, And so... Various things that still kind of, uh, you know, were jarring in terms of things. But it was interesting. And and by the way, what was interesting was that um, um, I didn't have any problem dealing with foreigners. I mean, I did arrive in a large plane that said United States of America, but they knew that when they were talking to me, they were talking to the United States. I had more problems with the men in our own government, and partially because they had known me so long. I was a friend of their wife's. I'd had them over for dinner. Um, We all knew each other very well. And some of them would have thought that they should be Secretary of State and wondered how, how did she get to be Secretary of State. But it was much easier
0: to deal with foreign leaders. Today's episode features a conversation with two exceptional women leaders, Secretary Madeleine Albright and her daughter, Alice Albright. This Women's History Month, the Aspen Institute Forum on Women and Girls launched the Institute's first-ever Fellowship and Leadership series focused exclusively on women. These exceptional conversations will be live-streamed and will feature extraordinary leaders who have broken barriers, championed change, and pursued bold ideas to advance the cause of women and girls. To learn more, visit aspenwomenandgirls.org. And now, back to the bridge. You know, Alice, you have had a remarkable career. And I think you're even just, you know, still in the middle of it. First as a banker, then as the chief financial and investment officer at the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization. And I do need to put in this, which I was so amazed by, uh, many may not know Alice, but you were really the pioneer and the architect of the very first advanced market commitment, which was a new approach an innovative financing model that allowed millions of dollars to be raised for vaccination which led to millions of children being vaccinated, which led to today one of the great successes in global development, which is a 40% reduction in child mortality. So that was something that you did. You were not the leader at Gavi, but I know you were the one that really led on that. And then you went on to serve as COO of the Export-Import Bank. In the Obama administration, and now you serve um, in a really wonderful capacity as the CEO of the Global Partnership for Education. So, your career has not been, uh, has, has, uh, has really been incredible and impressive to so many. So, one question I have is Has your mom's life and career influenced your own choices in any way? Um, how has she influenced your life? Goodness. Uh, well, nobody has a
2: better mom than we do. Nobody. Um, Thank you, Alice. Well, it's, I, think, I think that's a fact, not not an opinion. Um, uh, well, in, I mean, so many ways out of you know where to begin. I mean, I I get my I think my interest in international things from mom uh, for sure, and even though I'm interested in a slightly different sort of subset of it, the development world, just the. Nothing is more of a delight than getting on an airplane and going to a different country and having to study up and go meet the people and understand the environment and try to solve problems. And I think uh, I get that from you. But mom has taught us, and I'm sure Ann and Katie would say the same thing if they were here, infinite numbers of ways to be. You know, work hard. Be humble. Be grateful for being here in the United States of America. Um, Listen. Uh, problem solve, um, you know, uh, you know, learn, read, absorb, you know, it, it, you know, and you can balance the sort of home life and the work life. And so, uh, you know, it's not just the substance that I think we share of interest, but it's the how to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody has a better mom than we do on the how to be. Tell me more about the how to be. How well, does that
0: play out in your daily life?
2: Well, I I often think okay, so, you know, when some issue would arise, what would mom do? Mm-hmm. Um and but the other thing and this happens on a on a daily basis, particularly when I travel is um so many people, men, women, heads of state, people in foreign ministries when I travel cuz usually the aid agency that I work with is part of the foreign ministry will say is your mom Madeline and I say yes of course and they're like oh my god oh my god she's wonderful but you have been a role model on all those things you know hard work dignity be grateful for what you have study up you know never stop
1: fighting Uh, and those are things that are just you know part of us
0: Mm.
1: part of us but I have to say I'm so proud of my daughters because they didn't have to do all the things they've done. And and you've described Alice very well. She is an activist, and she works all the time and has her head screwed on right about things that need to happen. Um, and we're here in Aspen together, and we have uh, actually been in, in this uh, group together. And I have to say, I am so proud when she's had an intervention and speaks. And it's so articulate, and you think, God, is this really my daughter? She's fantastic. You know, so that's great. And then her twin sister, who's a judge, I'm very proud of her, and my youngest daughter, who um, helps uh, abuse children in San Francisco. So, And then people say, my God, you really did well with your daughters. And I said, I certainly did, and they are fantastic. And I'm very proud, but one of the funny parts is how they began to, when I went to the UN for the first time, they took over my life. And so what happened was they worried about whether my bills were paid or whatever. And one of them would call me up because she was paying the credit card. And she said, Mom, did you really need those shoes? (laughs) So we completely reversed roles. And then when I went to um, a dangerous area in Croatia Mm -hmm. and Vukovar, and um, they threw rocks at me, and um, CNN said, Albright stoned in Vukovar. I came home and they said, Mom, you have to tell us when you go to dangerous places. So we totally reversed roles, and it's been a lot of fun.
2: Well, one, and one, I remember we spent a lot of time the Secret Service that Mom had, the the DS, who were wonderful guys saying, please take care of her. Um, (laughs) But, you know, one one mythology and the sort of, you know, sort of fun to myth bust, but one myth to bust is that I often sort of get asked a question that sort of implies that mom kind of forced us into the choices we made career-wise. Like, did your mom expect, expect, expect? And and it's not true, actually. There was no sense of, oh, you must go do this. Mom, let us all make the decisions that we made. So, mm-hmm. which is even being an even better mom. Because uh-huh. uh, there's sort of, some people who sort of, get into sort of the psychodrama of oh my god were you expected and it's just not true right that's great that's great
0: so can you put down the weight of the bad mom guilt that we all carry around what do you think is it possible it's so interesting because um clearly alice doesn't feel that way i
2: i don't feel that way i
0: mean i like to laugh i have this conversation with my daughter all the the time i mean i've
2: i've given i i have given up on certain things i mean when i you know, we have a joke in my house. When I say, okay, well, I mean, my boys don't live with us anymore. They've left. But, you know, when they used to, I'd say, well, all right, let's 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 sit and have dinner, and I'm going to cook dinner on Sunday night. And they would say, please don't. You know, <laughs> we know you don't know how to cook. Can't we just order? And I, I would say, no, 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 I can at least assemble food. And they said, no, 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 please. So I, I just know there's certain things that I'm not going to be – I'm not going to do. But I also know there's a lot of things that I am going to do. And – so I just kind of try to be the mom that, you know, that I am and I don't right. have a sense of guilt. But I, I know that under any circumstances, you have to ask them this question, but um, I'm there for them. If there's a crisis, I'm there. That's great, but you know some of the other stuff. I'm like, I know what I can't do.
0: Yeah, and maybe the mom job description is never really done. You know, it's a sort of a compl- evolving thing, and and it's a it's a you're always on, you're always on duty as mom, and so the question of assessing whether you're good or bad is always every day.
1: But the crazy part, we are in Aspen where we have come since these since my daughters were very very little, and I'm having a real problem this time because in fact. I have always been mom in charge here ever since they were little. So all of a sudden, I'm trying to figure out, are they out on their bicycles <laughs> or whatever? I think, honestly, are you crazy? You know, so <laughs> that part
0: never goes <laughs> so it away. It never goes away. Instead, Alice is making the brilliant, and I can testify your interventions were brilliant in the meeting every time. So, So let's talk a little bit about, and thank you. Both for sharing, that was really fascinating, and actually gave me a lot of relief because we all struggle with the mom, working mom question, and that is, Madeline, you're the first to always say no man will ever be asked that question about balance of mm-hmm. life, but we're asked it all the time. Um, let's talk a little bit about this moment we're in right now, and how we're, what's happening with women's rights. Um, and what's not happening with women's rights. And I wonder if we can just start with you, Madeline. What are you hopeful about right now, and what are you most worried about right now? Well, I am most worried, first, about the fact
1: that uh, we still judge, you know, did she say the right thing for a woman? Or, um, you know, could a woman ever do a job? What It doesn't matter. I mean, it, it does not go away. I have to say this won't surprise people, I think Hillary would have been a brilliant president. Um, I've I've known her a very long time, and I think the fact that um, she didn't, well, she actually did win, but the bottom line is that I think there was a real question as to whether a woman could be president of the United States. And we are looking at that again and not looking at what people think and do but are definitely making gender um, discrimination is one of the things. The United States loves to be number one. There are there are women presidents in other countries, and so I find it passing strange. But I also am afraid that there are more and more um, men, frankly, and some women, um, that don't want a woman in leadership role. The part, to go back on something that we do to each other, I remember when, I was, when Geraldine Ferraro was running for vice president and I traveled with her and we were somewhere and a woman came up to me and said, well, can she talk to a Russian? I can't talk to a Russian. Well, nobody was asking this woman to talk to a Russian and we um, uh, kind of project our own sense of lack of confidence onto other women and I think that is something that continues to worry me um and then also that there are men who just i keep trying to figure out what makes men so terrified of women exactly. i honestly can't you know because i think we all want to be partners um and so i'm very worried about that there are various forces to to push us back and that as i said earlier that the younger women kind of take things for granted i never take anything for granted
0: mm. alice what are your thoughts about this where
1: we are at this moment?
2: Well, I'm I'm worried about the things that aren't changing fast enough. Um, So, for example, uh, you know, last couple of weeks, Christine Lagarde and Ursula von der Leyen are made, uh, respectively, the head of the ECB and the head of the European Commission. And the immediate press around both of them was "Mm, sort of an uh uh-uh choice. And... It's kind of incredible to even be talking about that when you look at the pedigree of both of them, and it's just I sort of say, how could you be even? How could one be even asking that question? I don't know Ursula von der Leyen all that well, but Christine Lagarde is kind of incredible, um, and she's going to do just fine running the ECB. Uh, so I'm worried that we're still asking that same kind of question, and that's not happening fast enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm worried about what is tolerated. I mean, the the Me Too, you know, the existence of sexual harassment in the workplace, and how frequent and widespread it is, is just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, You know, one of the people I'm very close to is Julia Gillard, and she's the chair of the board of uh, GPE, and we've gotten to be very good friends. And when I look at what happened, the Global Partnership, Partnership for Education. Sorry, sorry, no acronyms. Sorry, no acronyms. <laughs> um, uh, you know what she encountered you know, within Australian politics when she was the first woman prime minister was sort of unspeakable in some ways. Mm. Um, so I'm very worried about what is not changing fast enough, and uh, and how, and that's what gives me f- concerns about how quickly things could uh, slip okay. back. And so it is, you know, while there are certainly evidence that women are coming along. It is uh, certainly within the developed world, it could slip back. Mm -hmm. Very quickly, let me tell you what's happening in the developing world. Uh, And this is something that my organization spends a lot of time on. Girls are regularly kept out of school for all kinds of what I call hard asset and soft asset problems. And that is going to take decades to fix. Uh, And one of the things that's Uh, unclear about the numbers. The numbers show that there is gender parity, but the numbers only measure a part of the problem. If you look, there's a whole off-the-grid problem. If you look at who's actually kept out of school completely, it's mostly girls. Uh, Two-thirds of the adults in the world that are illiterate are women. Uh, In many countries, people get married when they're 13. They're girls. Start having children, that's it. Can't get back into the, the workforce. So... I think there's an enormous amount of work to do both in the developed world and the, even more in some ways in the developing world. And I'm quite worried about.
0: All of that, right? Exactly, and you know, to your point, Madeline, it's that as we move into twenty twenty, as we and, and to you, you, asked that question, why why are men so threatened by women? You can't help but think that these days, because there is this question that there's this underlying, you know, sort of deep behavioral or even almost subconscious or conscious in many cases, um, gender discrimination that. We have worked so hard to get over, um, and so it's hard to see. So you both talked about things that you were worried about. What about what you're hopeful for, Madeline? Is there something that's giving you some hope right now about women's rights? Well, I am hopeful because I think
1: there are more women um, that are out there. For instance, and what I find fascinating is our new Congress uh, has an awful lot of new women um, that have risen through a variety of paths. Um, and they are working together, and they are working with men. And so I do think that um, there are good signs, kind of, that are moving in that direction. Um, and I and I think we need to, but, you know, I think we need to be supportive of each other without making life more complicated for each other. But Now, that doesn't mean that I agree with everything that every woman has said or done. I actually don't, and I wouldn't. Um, say to somebody they needed to vote for somebody they disagreed with. But I do think that there are more women in the developed world, frankly, that are entering into public service in some form or another. Um, I, what I find interesting, I do teach at, at Georgetown, and, and the there doesn't seem to be that kind of discrimination between the, the men and the women in class anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the part that is interesting... Is um how many take I, I do role play, what kind of roles they choose, how much the the men uh, uh, respect the women? But I really do think that in the younger generation, if we can keep going with it, I do find hope in them mm-hmm. because they are coming at it from a from a different okay. angle, and I just hope they're not influenced by yeah. uh, those who who want to push back. Well. But there's just no question of the stuff that Alice was talking about in the developing world is very, very worrisome uh, because the huge numbers of population growth are coming out of that, and so that is one of the aspects. But I am hopeful. You know, I'm often asked if I'm a pessimist or an optimist. I say I'm an optimist who worries a lot. (laughs) So I do think one has to talk about it and point it out so that we can talk about what we're concerned about but keep the hopes uh, at the forefront. Absolutely.
0: Um, let, let me ask you this, you know, both of you, uh, which is so interesting that I think about it, Madeline, you know, you've been in dusty rural communities, kind of in, in, in faraway countries, you've been in presidential palaces, you've been in classrooms, um, you know, you've traveled all over the world and, and you have as well. Alice, do you think there's a global women's movement right now? And, um, and where and how do you see it?
1: I think there is a global women's movement. I think there is a sisterhood. I think what's very interesting, it is the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Women's Conference. There are a lot of... I love anniversaries because it really gives you a chance to take stock and push, and I do think that we have seen a lot in terms of women's movements, um, some in fulfillment of the national action plans, but then also because... There is support of women through the United Nations in a number of different ways um also um I'm chairman of the board of the National Democratic Institute, and what we do is try to support uh, women in through in every country to get elected um and so I do think that there is there is something a sisterhood um and I think it's very important yeah. what do you think Alice
2: I think there is a sisterhood and one one of the things that um i Makes me smile. I travel a lot too, and then you know, from time to time, I'll bump into women who are in senior positions in education ministries and, and so forth. And soon enough, in a conversation, somebody will say, sort of out of the side of their mouth, Well, something, 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 but the men, da da, and you can you know, immediately there's a connection, um, on an, an issue. So, yes, I think there is a sisterhood, and I think that, uh, I can come back to the Me Too movement, but I think that the actually, the the social media tools that we have have brought women together more closely uh quickly so yes that has happened the tools have gotten better and it's going to continue think about you know the think about the impact that malala has had yeah. um you know she is a global icon
0: uh so yes right i think you know the power of the me too movement was that people didn't feel alone and that's why they were able to come forward all of us, I think, felt that way for the first time. It wasn't that the that these were new things that were happening. They'd always happened that somehow their sisterhood made it possible to talk about it. That's so interesting. And I love this thought of both of you um, interacting and inspiring the global women's movement in, in all the places you travel. Um, so we're kind of coming to the end of this conversation, although I feel like I could talk to you both for hours and hours, and I'm sure the listeners feel the same way. Um, what, what, let's think about a little bit about the generations that you're both from. And, and, and Madeline, my question for you is is, what's one hope that you have for Alice's generation? Well, my hope is really that they are
1: recognized for everything that they do and that they also can have a choice. I think that they don't have to do things just because um, somebody next door is doing them or whatever, but that that freedom that comes with respect and, and and frankly, that they're happy. I really do think that's important and that they recognize... Um, how incredible it is to um, be able to do what you want in a country. um, I think America is the most incredible country. And that um, they are grateful to the fact that their grandparents came to the United States of America. Beautifully said.
0: Alice, what's one hope for your mom's generation?
2: Well, I hope from our generation we don't forget the lessons of mom's generation. And uh, because because we are things are still fragile, so we have to always be reminded of where things started and what it took to get keep things moving. I mean, I'm, you know, I've been struck sitting in the meetings the last two days, being in the presence of Mom and Mary Robinson, and so here we have two icons who were firsts in many ways, um, and so people in my generation can't forget what it took. For people to get to my generation and then people in my generation can't take for granted what they have but they have to create space for people to define what they what they want ahead of us so uh, we have to keep thinking generationally about this. I think right. You're right to ask
0: that question. Right. No, absolutely. So, uh, Madeline and, and Alice, thank you so much for thank sharing you, your wisdom and your uh, inspiration with us today and, and for the work that you do. And it, It's really just been a joy. Thank you so much.
1: Peggy, I want to thank you because the things that you've done with the Aspen Institute and um, making sure that women's issues are out there You'd, just now, we have been having the Brookings Blum meetings, and you're the one that made sure that women's issues were on the agenda, mm-hmm. and it's made a difference because um, it's been a co-ed discussion, <laughs> uh, and, but it, it, you, you would think that it wouldn't need somebody to keep pushing, but I think that is part of the sisterhood. And thank you for pushing on all of this.
0: Thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you for listening to the voices of Extraordinary Women on the Bridge, a production of the Aspen Institute. Please be sure to join us again next month and to download other episodes from Seasons 1 and 2 of The Bridge on your favorite podcast app. I'm Peggy Clark, and thanks for listening.